Esports Podcast, where the jocks and the geeks sing Kumbaya together. In this episode, our third on the 2020 Tokyo Games, we hear from two scholars who have been vocal opponents of these Olympics, Professor Jules Boykoff and Professor Naofumi Suzuki. As we heard from Professor Matheson in the last episode, the costs of hosting the Games are enormous, but these costs are not only economic. There are environmental and social costs too. Perhaps worst of all, there appears to have been misleading information fed to the Japanese public about these costs, which has bred distrust of government itself, and which is a cost that may be very difficult to calculate. As these professors will tell us, once a nation wins a bid to host the Olympics, there's almost nothing that can stop it. It's like a freight train coming down the line. And as Professor Boykoff explains, this train is fueled by an ideology that he calls celebration capitalism. What happens when a nation uses a mega spectacle like the Olympic Games to make money? The celebration might be exciting and perhaps even thrilling, but it is a fleeting experience, like the cherry blossoms that the Japanese cherish so deeply. The longer lasting legacies, however, may not be so beautiful as they fall. So listen in as these scholars explain why these Olympics were built on false promises, commercial lust, and with a near total disregard for people's health, well-being, and the environment. In particular, listen to what Professor Suzuki says about what he thinks should be done to ensure that the indignities of these Olympics are never repeated. I suspect you will be as stunned by his suggestion as I was. Let's start with a 10-minute interview I did with Professor Boykoff, who will explain why he has become a vocal opponent of the Olympic Games. Professor Boykoff writes on a range of subjects, including political activism, the Olympic Games, and climate change. He teaches at Pacific University and is the author of four books on the Olympics, two books on the suppression of political dissent, and writes peer-reviewed articles in fields such as political science, sociology, geography, environmental studies, and history. Thank you so much for making time. First of all, congratulations on your publication in the New York Times recently, calling for the cancellation of the Olympics. Why do you think that the Tokyo Olympics should be canceled? I would say for starters, I, I wrote it because I have a concern for global public health, just in general. Right now, as we're speaking, Aaron, there's 3.3 million people plus who've died of the coronavirus. That's almost the total population of Yokohama, which is Japan's second largest city. The second reason I wrote it was just a concern for public health in Japan, where vaccination rates are very low, 2% or so. And compared to the rest of the world, the developed world, not doing that great. Also, right now, as we speak, Japan's in the midst of a fourth wave of coronavirus. So concern for public health in Japan. Third, concern of the public health of athletes. I myself was a former athlete. And I know that when I was 19 years old playing for the U.S. Olympic team, I would have been gung-ho to go to Tokyo this summer. No question about it. You have a feeling of invincibility, but unfortunately, COVID has no mercy even on the top athletes of the world. And we've seen that as the coronavirus has unfolded. And last, I wrote it because the general sentiment in Japan is that they don't want the Olympics. So the people that are hosting the games, in the most recent poll, 59% wanted to cancel the Olympics. 59%, this is unparalleled in the political history of the Olympics. And so when you add up those factors, it seems pretty clear to me that an optional sports spectacle on one hand, global public health and the desire of the hosts on the other, it seems pretty clear cut really. Yes, thank you, Professor. And it ties into your uh, your theory of celebration capitalism, which I want to make sure that my students understand clearly. So I wonder, can you speak to that concept, how you came to it and what it means? 
Sure. I think to understand celebration capitalism, we need to start with Naomi Klein's idea of disaster capitalism. So in her great book, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, she talks about how capitalists cap capitalize off catastrophe. In other words, there's a downturn in the economy, there's a hurricane, and capitalists swoop in and make these changes during that negative state of exception that they'd never be able to make during normal political times. So take schools in New Orleans, you just privatize them like mad while you have the chance. And what I argue is that there's also something called celebration capitalism. That's a sort of one-two punch, if you will, with disaster capitalism. And in, under celebration capitalism, first of all, it's happening under celebration conditions. Second of all, it's not necessarily always doing what disaster capitalism does. She argues that under disaster capitalism, private entities use that moment to privatize everything with a pulse. With the Olympics, is that's not really what's going on there. Actually, they're largely publicly funded for the most part. Yes. And so you in, instead of privatize everything, you engage in these public-private partnerships that in the context of the Olympics are always lopsided public-private partnerships where the public tends to pay and the private entities involved tend to profit. And so this all results in a sort of trickle up economics where those who are already doing well, the broadcasters of the Olympics, the people that manage the Olympics, they do great from this system. Who doesn't do so great? Everyday people in the host city. And in fact, actually athletes don't do that well out of the system. I, mean, I think it's important to think of athletes in this context as athlete workers. Mm -hmm. And a recent study that was carried out uh, by Ryerson University in Canada in conjunction with the global athlete found that when they compared Olympic athletes to athletes in the NBA, National Basketball Association, the National Football League, National Hockey League, and the English Premier League, that when it came to the revenues in those sports, those four leagues, non-Olympic leagues, athletes got between 40 and 60% of the revenues, 40 and 60%. The Olympics, 4.1%. So when I'm talking about trickle up economics is trickling up to people who aren't even athletes, the people that are producing value for the actual event. And because it's a celebration, it creates this perfect cover to just proceed ahead like nothing's wrong because, you know, people do like the Olympics. There is a feel good factor that actually emerges in the Olympics. I lived in London in the lead up to and during those Olympics in 2012. I lived in Rio de Janeiro in the lead up to and those Olympics in uh, 2015 and 2016. And so I've seen it with my own two eyes, like the feel good factor is when it's, there's a celebratory atmosphere all, often, but behind that sort of scrim of celebration, certain people are benefiting. And that's why I want to lift up capitalism into the discussion as well, because a lot of times when we talk about sports and stuff, the economic side goes to the corner and it's like uncouth almost to start talking about profits and stuff like that. And we just should be enjoying the sport. But I think if we're quiet about that, then the same people who are already doing really well in this world are going to continue to do while the money doesn't go to places that where, where it probably should, to be honest, like everyday people in the Olympic host city and certainly athletes as well. Thank you very much. And as you mentioned, the Japanese population, 60% are saying they don't want it. And yet they are the taxpayers who are paying for, they're taking the financial risk and putting forth this event. Yeah, That's they, a really good point. If I could just add something, Aaron, to please that. Please do. What you're saying is really important about democracy in the Olympics. In my historical research on the Olympic Games, I found that the International Olympic Committee has had very little interest in democracy. And if you look <clears throat> at their internal documents, 
what you'll find is they have an outright disdain for democracy in particular mm-hmm. moments. Their Olympic charter is full of all sorts of wonderful ideas, but behind the scenes, the things that they say to each other about democracy, they have no interest. There's lots of ways where we could democratize the games for the better. Let me just give one example that, by the way, the, the International Olympic Committee says they might have some interest in, but whether they follow up is another question. And that is the issue of having a public referendum if you're going to host the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. After all, when a city is going for the Olympics, they're being told by those in the International Olympic Committee, this is an amazing opportunity for your city once in a generation. Like, you should really go for it. It's a big deal. If it's a big deal, well, then it seems to me that everybody in the city should have an opportunity to weigh in on whether that's what they want to spend their tax dollars on. The recent Olympic hosts have not had that luxury. Tokyo did not have that luxury. Now, before them, Rio did not have that luxury. London did not have that luxury. Beijing certainly did not have that luxury. And we just go back through time with Summer Olympics and they haven't had a chance to weigh in. Now, hey, if a city gets the information that they need to make an informed decision and they decide that, yep, that's what we want to do with our uh, money, we want to spend it on the Olympics, then, hey, who am I to come from Portland, Oregon and tell them, okay, yes, yeah, sorry, it's, that's what, how democracy works. doesn't mean you like all the decisions, but you agree to abide by them if the majority was able to vote for it. It would make perfect sense at this juncture to have all Olympic bids be required to, at one point in their Olympic bid, have a public referendum where everyday people get to say, everyday taxpaying people in many cases get to have a say as to whether they want to host the Olympics. And for a little while, it looked like the International Olympic Committee might succumb to that. Uh, In recent years though, or recent months, I should say, we have seen no motion in that Mm -hmm. IOC ocean on that issue. And maybe that's a little something to do with the fact that between 2011 and 2018, there were 11 different bid cities that's got their bids got squashed because of either a actual ballot measure the threat of a ballot measure or somebody was elected through a democratic practice to office who part of their platform was no olympics as was the case with someone named virginia Raghi in rome in italy so i think the games would benefit from an infusion of democracy the question is do the barons of the games the brahmin of the games the members of the international olympic committee have an interest in- very interesting yes and of course the modern olympic games were founded by a baron i'm glad you used that word pierre de coubertin who thought it could help to uh, alleviate tensions between european countries but it does seem to me that anti-democratic part of your story is very interesting and and people are forgetting democracy they're forgetting the conflict between uh, management and labor in order to experience this feel good two weeks period or whatever it is in the summer or they're just not being given a a vote so that's really quite interesting about the referendum i wonder whether uh, there will be any movement on that so i wonder what you think our students should know and then what they should do what is something that you recommend to your students for example for starters for what we should know i i think i highly recommend studying the political history of the olympics there's a lot that we can know that help us understand our present moment if we take a real good frontal look at the history of the Olympics. And sometimes it's grim, to be honest. At other times, um, it's not grim, it's wonderful. And I think what we always find when we look at the Olympics is that the athletes are the people that make it what it is. It's not the International Olympic Committee who stand up behind the podium and say how wonderful the Olympics are. It's always the athletes. And so I try to be mindful in my own work about those Olympic athletes who have thrown so much of their life into succeeding in sport and making it to that big stage. And they probably, for the most part, 
there are exceptions, but for the most part, they probably haven't thought that much about the political history of the Olympics. It takes that kind of monomaniacal drive toward greatness to get to that level to be a successful Olympian in most cases. Sure. So I don't blame, I just want to say one other thing I, I recommend is like not being too hard on the athletes because they're often caught in the middle. Just an sure. example, you think about the upcoming Olympics after Tokyo in Beijing, there's a lot of pressure to perhaps boycott those Olympics in some kind of way. Maybe even an athlete boycott has been raised. Sure, sure. And so when that happens, those athletes are essentially caught between, on one hand, clearly repressive regime that are treating ethnic Uyghurs and other populations in ways that violate their human rights. On the other hand, you've got an International Olympic Committee that's saying, we have nothing to do with it. We can't do anything about it. We're totally powerless when it comes to what the host does. And the athletes are sandwiched between those two worlds and I don't envy them. And so I guess I would just recommend the, to have some space for athletes to be athletes and maybe not to be up to speed 100% on these issues because it, it does take some study and it takes some time and it takes some desire to do so. In terms of what you can do, besides just get up to speed, you can definitely get involved in learning more on the ground, like actually talking to people who are involved with the Olympics, talking to critics with the Olympics, maybe even getting involved in your own kind of way with the either the Olympics or the anti-Olympics movements that have popped up in all the cities around. There's no dearth of opportunities in, the, in terms of there's a really interesting campaign happening right now in Los Angeles called No Olympics LA that is an anti-Olympics group that has managed to cobble together an international transnational anti-Olympics movement. It used to be protesting the Olympics was like an activist game of whack-a-mole where it'd pop up in the city and then it would go down at the end of the Olympics. What's happening in LA is they're trying to foment, create a transnational anti-Olympics movement that is here to stay. It jumps from town to town. So it's, it's an outlet perhaps for some of your students to learn more because of the COVID moment that a lot of what the organizing is happening over Zoom. You could attend one of their meetings. Uh, they're, they're in English, which is why I'm suggesting them as opposed to like groups in Japan that are also organizing around the Olympics right now. And just because you join a meeting doesn't mean that you're going to have to join the group. It could just be a way of getting more knowledgeable about their approach. So that opportunity is definitely there as well. And you learn a whole lot about what's going on in Los Angeles, something that'll be in the news for quite a bit here in the United States, um, especially for you folks in, in California, the closer we get to 2028 when they're hosting those Summer Olympics then. Yes. Thank you so much, Professor. I really am very grateful to you for spending some time and, and recording this. My pleasure. And I wish you the very best with the course. Thank you very much, Professor. You have a nice day. Okay. You too. Bye -bye. Take care. Here, a presentation from Professor Suzuki, who builds on Professor Boykoff's idea of celebration capitalism and adds his own perspective, which is informed by his on the ground in Japan research. I have this great pleasure of introducing my friend and also a great scholar, Professor Suzuki Naofumi, who teaches as a full professor in the Graduate School of Social Sciences at Hitotsubashi University in Tokyo, Japan. And Professor Suzuki has a background in engineering and urban studies and now writes about sports sociology, social inclusion, and the anti-Tokyo Olympics movement. And we're really fortunate that Professor Suzuki did his PhD in Scotland, and so he speaks English very well. 
And so, Professor Suzuki, thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. We really appreciate it. And we're really looking forward to, to learning from you. Thank you for your very introduction, which is not... Uh, Too much? Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you very much, Aaron. And I really looked for this opportunity. And hello, everyone. So today I was asked to talk about the anti-Olympics in Japan. But what I'm going to try to do is to give you what I, I think, what can we conclude in terms of the effects that the games likely brings about in the host city. What I'm going to tell you is very pessimistic, but I think it's realistic. I, I want to start this with this picture. Aaron, do, do you recognize where this is? Oh, boy. Um... Not to uh, get on my construction sites these days. I'm going to guess this is Toyosu, maybe, where they're putting Tsukiji Fish Market. I don't know. Yeah, that's... Yeah, is that yeah, right? Yeah. Got it. Really? This is Tsukiji. Tsukiji. Ah, Tsukiji. Five years back. Five years back. That's the largest fish market in the world, or so was, it's, anyway. It's right in the center of Tokyo. And, uh, it, and then it's got relocated to Toyosu, farther away from the center. And I was walking along the so-called Olympic-related urban development sites uh, during that time with, with my students. And uh, I took this picture. This is the Tsukiji market from here to, to there. And there's a bridge over here on the left. This bridge doesn't have a road. There's no continuation of the road from here yet because there is a Tsukiji market so this road wants to go, go penetrate the Tsukiji market but at that time uh, there was a contaminated water found in Toyosu so there was a public objection to the relocation but the, the Toyosu market was already there built ready to go but people, many people want, didn't want to lose this Tsukiji. It's a cultural heritage in Tokyo. So many people, like many Tokyo people, liked it. But the developers wanted to develop this place because, as you can see, there are a lot of high-rise buildings just next to the market. So there's a commercial development potential in this area. So they really wanted to develop this area way before the Olympics won in the bidding. So the plan to, for this road was all, all, always there as well. So what the Olympics did was that they could finally get a goal for this, these, already, the, these development plans already there. But so even though the governor Koike was publicly, everybody knows it was her performance, but publicly speaking that we might keep Tsukiji or also there was an issue well about Olympic venues costing too much. So she wanted to uh, cut the cost. But uh, seeing this, I thought there's no way stopping it. There's no way stopping it. The bridge is ready. And so it's going to be really surreal if you keep this road without no extension here. So I thought this is going to happen. 
so the, the reason why I, I wanted to start my talk from this picture is that once the Olympics officially decided to come, it's really hard to stop the process. That's because it involves all these other things as well. And then people used the Olympics as excuses to bulldoze things that they wanted to do anyway. I, I walked around Olympic-related urban development sites and I felt really powerless because so many developments were going on and some small ones really, like I, really small ones, like I, I show this one. It's a, only a street right near the new stadium. You see the five rings here and it's brand new. <laughs> but you needed this. Did you really need this upgrade? And then you don't even know if this is included in the Olympic-related spending officially. So I gave up on really following what the Olympics really costing us. So it's really hard to stop. If there's anything that the Tokyo Games could contribute to make the Olympics more sustainable, my take, take has been that we should fail really badly so that people realize that we need to change. There's changes are really needed. And it's almost happening to me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't want to sound really pessimistic, but they need to know that this is not functioning. People need to know. That's the starting point, I, I think. If you consider this, the Olympics as a sporting event, where all the athletes, you know, world best athletes are competing against each other. We get this. Each sport has, you know, their own world championship games every year or every two years or every four years, depending on the, the sports course. But yeah, we get that and then we enjoy it, you know, and then we enjoy it through the internet or the uh, broadcasting. We, we get that. We can enjoy that quite uh, regularly. Why Olympics really condensed, every sports condensed into one period of time. And then that's a very big, it's almost like a big earthquake for one city. And why would you want this? I, I might suggest that you held athletic track and field in one city and uh, baseball in one city or something like that. And it might happen, it might work. But it's not just about sports. It's about, you know, economic op opportunities, you know, or I, I should say, you know, commercial opportunities and political nationalism. So it's really hard. Cities across the world don't seem to want to host the Olympics anymore. So a, a lot of candidate cities have withdrawn their bit. Basically, the, the reason is mainly the financial burden that the cities need to uh, bear. And also many cities have done referendum and even though it was pretty close and uh, it's usually in favor of the 
people who are against the Olympics. And it resulted in the decision for the 2014 and 2024 and 28 summer games uh, given to Paris and LA without voting. So sociologist of sport, Peter Donnelly says that the games can't be held under functioning democracy anymore. So for the no offense to, to LA, but they, they didn't go through the democratic process at all. And uh, I think in Tokyo, can I say it's not democratic, yeah, maybe in Japan. So uh, as I talk about what effects that the, the games will uh, bring about in the city, I talk about uh, short-term short-term impact, which is the net increase in the benef in benefits to the local community. This shouldn't be confused with the concept of contribution, which is the total amount of related economic activities. So, if you have a sporting event, there will be related economic uh, activities. But if you don't have that event, you still have similar. Amount of economic activities. So a lot of it is substitution of normal activities. But if you have an event, it may be a little bit bigger than the normal economic activities. So we want to identify this, you know, net increase. That's what's called impact in economic terms. And also, uh, I look at the long term. Legacy is a very political term, but Grattan and Prales give us a clear. Analytical definition, and for them, it's about structure. So impact can be very tentative, very temporary, but legacy stays there because the structure get changed. It's important that we we understand the legacy as structural transformation. Hosting the games can bring about physical uh, structural transformation in terms of urban development. Or governance structures get will change because they get they need to re legislate a lot of related regulations and things like that. Of course, cultural structure might change and so on, but this physical and uh, governance structural change uh, will bring about economic structural change. That's the the point today. But so for the economic effect, this is the official estimate of the economic economic effect for the Tokyo Games. They say 32.3 trillion yen, and this is outrageous. This is this is absurd. But this is the official figure now. The trick is that they included 10 years after the games. So, if you break this down, the direct effects is up until 2020 is a five trillion, whereas the legacy effect, as they call it, is after the 2020 is over 27 trillion. So this is the trick. So the, because the Olympic say that the, the, there should be legacy. They makes the more well exploit that discourse and uh, included a lot of stuff as an economic uh, effect of the Olympics. But the truth is, they are not, as I said, they are they are not 
the net increase at all. They might, they would have happened anyway without the Olympics. And more interestingly, the official figure was originally only three trillion. So it's now 10 times bigger than the original one after three or five years, maybe. So it, that's the shocking part too. This is three trillion yen is probably the overestimate as well, but it's now 10 times bigger than that. And during that time, other private research institute gave the similar number, but few years later, they started to give bigger number. This Mori Memorial Foundation is a branch of a huge uh, urban developer called Mori Corporation. And they gave nearly 20 trillion yen in 2014. And next year, the same institute, the Mizuho Research Institute, up, updated their estimate and it's now 30 trillion. So before the, the Tokyo Metropolitan Government updated their estimate, those private institutes uh, was slowly building the kind of atmosphere that the Tokyo Games will be bigger than what it had been. The economic impact will be bigger than what it had been said. The very important thing is that during this time, the estimate for the cost got increased as well. Like, firstly, it was estimated as 700 a billion yen, but during that time, during the summer or around the summer of 2015, I believe, it was actually three trillion yen. So it didn't look good that the, the cost will be three trillion and then the benefit will be three trillion. So that was obviously the main reason that they wanted the large number. BOJ, Bank of Japan, also released a report in the at the end of 2015, around the same period. Looking at this uh, graph, newspaper reports cited this estimate as to, to 25 to 30 trillion yen. Okay, then I went to the, this original report and then read it very carefully and then found this uh, graph and then it's, it says here, it says image. <laughs> <laughs> Say image. And uh, there's no actual number. BOJ doesn't specify the estimated amount in the report. So how come they say to, to 25 to 30? It's to, if you add these bars up using this uh, scale, it's going to be roughly to 25 and 30. <laughs> you, you can try to do it, but that's probably the trick. And uh, so this report is very misleading, but intentionally misleading, I say. So it's very vicious. I think it's very wrong, but BOJ uh, can say that they, they didn't specify the number, but the newspaper reports all go for this number. That's fascinating. So let me interrupt you, if I may, yeah. Suzuki-sensei. So, so if it's intentionally misleading, the question that is back there is why? Right. So 
I, I don't know what's happened the, uh, behind the scene, but as you might remember, in the summer of 2015, the government, national government, was under fire because of the national security bill. And the Abe prime minister wanted to avoid the criticism. And at the same time that there was an increased cost of the construction of the new national stadium was also criticized. So these, Abe wanted to dodge this criticism by going for calling off this new national stadium plan. Do you remember? So this this political. Yes, I do. It was、uh, a very. It, there were cost overruns for that stadium that were enormous. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Cost overrun. Yeah. So because of this it, national security law、uh, bill, new national stadium was used for a political purpose, and that's the climate of around that time, and obviously. And then the organizing committees try started to try to reduce the cost. And now during that this time it was said to almost three trillion, and then they reduced it to one point eight trillion. So they are trying to kind of. Come that critic criticism in general, and I think it, this is part of that political endeavor. It's my guess, but does it answer your question, Aaron? Yes, it does, and I'm interested. That do you think that they would spend any amount of money necessary for to put the、uh, games on? Ah, if they want to, yes.、Yeah. If they want. <laughs> If they、that's, want to, that's a good question. It's a very technical thing. Okay. So if you look at this report in the same year, okay, October, there was that this Olympic Water Stadium that the translation gives you for the rowing and other things, and this was also there was also a cost overrun for this one. Quite a big one, and so there was a. The original cost included the cost of removing a bridge from the venue, and sorry, this is funny English, but it was not included as a non-European project cost. This means that they didn't stop the project, but they. In the balance sheet of the Olympics, it's not officially the, the cost of the Olympics. Does it make sense?、Uh-huh. I think so. Yes, I、yeah. think I follow you. Yeah. So it's just dishonest reporting. It sounds like、yeah, dishonest I mean, financial yeah. reporting. Yeah. For the taxpayers, their their tax tax will be spent anyway, but it's not because of the Olympics. That's what they did. Wow. So, That that means that they would spend money anyway. And this is all being reported in the Mainichi newspaper, one、yeah. of the leading newspapers of Japan,、uh-huh. and and this is contributing, I imagine, to the rising numbers of people in Japan who've said, "We don't want the Olympics anymore." Is that right? 
Yeah, around that time, maybe, yeah. But it didn't uh, <laughs> uh, do much compared to COVID-19 was the main factor. That, of course. Uh, the public against the Olympics now. I cover this topic every year. But my feeling is that at first, I think a couple of years before this, it was not students believed that there's benefits to the Olympics. But after a few years, the reaction changed a bit that I, we had the students writing their reaction papers saying that I thought that there won't be the economic benefits and then your lecture confirmed it and things like that. So I think these reports slowly uh, contributed to change the perception of the public. That's my guess. My take on it is people are very ignorant uh, of uh, Mm -hmm. the truth, but the the economists, as Matheson must have said, the economists agree on the agree that this is a slide. There's no economic benefit. If there's any economic benefit, it's negligible. And and there's all, a lot of negatives, it's especially the social side of it. I think it's very negative, especially the the the, the you know urban development and the related displacement of people is really a negative. So they don't know, know those things, and then they believe that the, the Olympics will give a lot of uh, economic benefits, and uh, plus they can enjoy sports, which is good. But the truth is, behind this celebration, as Professor Boykov says, there's little economic benefits, and then there's enormous public spending, and yes. a lot of vulnerable population got rid of the, the place that they have lived for years. Yeah, so you need to take these into account before saying yes or no to the Olympics, but they don't know those truths. And then it, the Olympics look good, right? So I try to uh, tell the truth. That's all. I'm not as active as uh, Boykov in terms of anti-Olympics movement, but I fight my fight through telling the truth like this. In terms of the displacement, it's happened. It's it happen. It always happens in every host city. This is Beijing, but this this is not only Beijing. It's happened in the in London as well. Why does this happen? Is because a lot of People want to do commercial urban development. They are leaning on this opportunity. So, for instance, this is the site of the new national stadium here. And this, there's an old stadium here. So they rebuilt it on the same site. But it's much bigger than the original one. There's this Kasumigaoka apartments. This is a social housing, public housing. So they are not wealthy. So the apartments get demolished, so they need to move out. And this apartment was built before the 1964 Olympics as well. So some of them lived there since then. And then they are very old, 80 years old, 90 years old. So it's quite violent to remove them from this place where they are very familiar and then they need to 
adjust to the new environment. That's very difficult. So there's related uh, development like JSC, Japan Sports Council's headquarters, will be removed to a luxury high-rise building. And right next to it, there will be a private apartment, which is the location of a Gaiyan house, which was uh, originally built for media people for 1964. And so those, they get the luxury deal with the, the developer to get a nicer flats, nicer rooms in the high-rise apartment. So you, you can see wealthy people get benefits, whereas the poorer people on the receiving end of the stick. So those private developments were only possible because of the stadium reconstruction, but uh, they are not included in the official Olympic projects, but the Olympics make it possible for those plans to uh, proceed. So around this area, it was actually famous for the homeless uh, people. It's a very nice park and uh, a lot of shades. And so a number of homeless people had lived there for many years. So they wanted to remove them too. So I was there talking to people uh, quite often uh, when they were talking about moving. It was pay really painful uh, to listen to their stories or actually seeing what's happening around them. I was going to say that the television capitalism actually materializes in Tokyo too. And there's lots of evidence that I, I can refer to. Part of the reason we cannot stop this, even under this you know, situation of COVID-19, is probably because the celebration capitalism is in place. Thank you so much, Professor Suzuki. That is really fascinating, and it does make a lot of sense. For myself, having lived in Tokyo for many years, it's quite shocking. You don't see as many homeless people in Japan as you do here in the U.S., but nonetheless, one is too many in any country. And that's quite shocking to hear about the displaced homeless people in Tokyo and people being forced out of their apartment buildings at such an advanced stage of life. It's really terrible. Yes, Cam. You just see a lot of parallels to this development of the new national stadium and the development of Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles, where right. there was a that group of mostly ethnic and Hispanics living up on Dodger's Ravine that they just mm -hmm. yanked out of their homes. You have pictures of them literally dragging a woman out of her home because they were going to tear everything down and build a baseball park there. And it's just been something that's been happening over the last 60 plus years now where there's just no real regard for human life. And if we want a piece of land for something that's desirable, we're just going to kick whoever is there out imminent domain right it happens if every large-scale development basically not only sports related ones but if you build a you know dam or you want a highway displacement of people happens but what's violent about this is because the event cannot wait so they shortcut the negotiation process so that's the violent part. And Tokyo's case may be a little bit, bit more civilized than compared to Rio de Janeiro, for instance, but uh, it doesn't justify what they did.
I don't think. Thank no you so much, ever. Professor Suzuki. That was fantastic, and we really learned a lot from you. And I know I speak for my students when I say we're very grateful to you for, for doing this for us today. Thank you. that will wrap up our show today. I hope you've learned something that prompts you to do something. The Olympics are clearly much more than fun and games, and so I believe now more than ever, it's our responsibility to make sure that they do not get out of hand. My sincere thanks to Professors Boykoff and Suzuki. It was an honor to have them take part in the St. Mary's Colloquium, and while it was difficult to digest much of what they said, I appreciate having the chance to have the veil lifted and learn more about how the Olympics actually work and what happens in the process. What do you make of their research findings? Should the Olympics have been canceled? What should happen going forward? What do we do to ensure that there is less pain associated with a sporting event that is supposed to bring the world pleasure? Thank you very much for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this show and leave a favorable review. And never forget that my listeners are what make this show possible and worthwhile. I welcome your feedback on the show too, so why not head over to my Patreon page and leave me a note. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you can search for me there by typing my name in the search box. A-A-R-O-N, L as in Larry Miller. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the Olympics and on this show. Have a great day, everyone.